All right, we're going to begin with the second inaugural address. Probably spend about no more than half our time on that because I definitely want us to get to Douglas as a way of transitioning from the Civil War era to turn of the century discussion and through the 20th century, which is going to uh, be our topic uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, I should point out uh, to my friend Joe Fornieri's uh, credit that he actually lists the Gettysburg Address twice in his book, and I should have directed your attention to the earlier pages, page 670 and 671, where he correctly points out that a score is 20, not 10, and there's another mistake. So somehow or another, the editor, instead of just cut, or no, copy and paste to the second uh, listing of the Gettysburg. Something got lost in translation. There's more than one error in the introduction, but he, he did get it right uh, the first time. So pages 670 and 71 correctly list a score as 20. Just FYI, for the record. We actually anticipated our discussion of uh, the second inaugural address when we were talking about the Gettysburg, which is a good thing. Uh, again, showing, uh, in my opinion, uh, that Lincoln uh, was pretty steady in terms of the principles that he held, the cause for which he believed the war was being prosecuted, at least on his end and on the part of the federal government. Um, and here's our water. So let's turn to uh, the second inaugural address. Uh, one, because we didn't go line by line in terms of the first inaugural, I never got a chance to ask the question, what uh, purpose do inaugural addresses serve? As distinguished from State of the Union addresses, what is the point of any presidential inauguration address? Lay out the game plan for the next four years. Okay, lay out the game plan for the next four years. Okay. Anybody want to add or qualify that at all? State of the Union, what's different? The Constitution requires the President to deliver a State of the Union to the assembled representatives of Congress, uh, the people. That's right. It has come to be a, uh, essentially a presidential wish list, right? I want hydrogen cars and this, that, and the other thing. Uh, now, the State of the Union is just a report. It doesn't have to be verbal. True, true. And in fact, the State of the Unions were not delivered in person. Yes. They were just sent over to the clerk, and the clerk read it to uh, the House and the Senate in joint session. Uh, I would say that the, the one key difference between a presidential uh, inauguration address and a uh, State of the Union address is it's entirely prospective. Usually or as a State of the Union is retrospective. This is where we've come from in the past year, where, where things stand right now. And then a few comments about what the future holds. An inauguration address follows an election. And uh, at, at least since uh, George Washington's first two terms, no election for president has been unanimous. And so usually an inaugural address is a way for the president to remind everyone that he is the president of the United States, not the president of only those people who voted for him or only his party. Okay. Uh, so, given that uh, general background on 
the purpose, the general purpose of inauguration addresses, um, we can contrast the first inaugural with the second inaugural of Lincoln's. Okay? Uh, in fact, Lincoln asks us to do so at the beginning of his uh, address. Let's look at that. What does he point out right away about what's going to be different in this address than the previous one? Yeah, the anticipation here, or at least what he's, he's expecting people, or he wants people to be kind of put on notice, is that this one is going to be much shorter than the first one. Why? Does he explain why this one is going to be a shorter one? It's not the shortest, but it's one of the shortest uh, ever delivered. What's the, why doesn't he have to talk a lot now, whereas uh, March 4th, 1861, uh, there was a lot of talking that was necessary on his part? Well, there was a threat of war. Addressing, you know, the issue of war and how he's going to try and prevent it, and it kind of calms down. Now the war has been fought, and uh, it's all but over. It's not quite over, but all but over. And he's said, "Well, we're just going to look back and or not look back, but I'm just going to uh, look to the future to see what." will happen at the end of the war and okay. we'd like to see us go. But briefly, Good. We still have a lot to... What other difference? Uh, what was novel about Lincoln's inauguration the first time around? Very mundane thing I want to make sure we don't overlook. War was pending. Okay, war was pending. What else? What about, what about Lincoln's own election? Go ahead. Yeah, okay, so this first Republican administration, first Republican president, uh, that's why you see him quoting feverishly at the beginning from the platform, from his own speeches, right? There is some hesitation or anxiety about just what this president is going to do. He's not quite an abolitionist. Frederick Douglass, Garrison, Phillips, and others always point that out. Yet they liked him better than most uh, of of the other candidates. Uh, But on the other hand, he's not a slave owner. Uh, and so just what, how much anti-slavery activity are we going to get from a president, especially in light of the fact that presidents don't have a whole heck of a lot of power? You don't think Congress has, I mean, you think Congress doesn't have much power. What about a president over the power of slavery? Not much. So he was trying to do a lot more of that sort of explaining to connect the people uh, uh, to, just to show that uh, what he says now is not contrary to anything he has said before anything his party has said before, anything he has done before. Okay? Uh, so a lot more of, uh, of that way of introduction. Lincoln has to introduce himself and the new administration and, in some sense, this uh, fairly new party, only been around nationally for four years. He has to introduce that to the country, especially given all of the charges and cri- criticisms of the Republican Party, being a sectional party, a radical party, uh, a revolutionary party. All of those criticisms you remember from the Cooper Institute speech in February of 1860. Right? Uh, a lot of kind of intellectual heavy lifting he had to do in the first inauguration, uh, in the first inaugural address. Second inaugural, right? He says there is less occasion for an extended address than there was at the first. And you notice if you go through that first paragraph, he takes you past present and future in that very first paragraph looks back to the second inauguration reminds us of where they are now and then makes a quick comment about the future and then he does it again a paragraph devoted to the past a long paragraph devoted to uh, 
an encapsulation of what they've just gone through to the, till the present time, and then a final paragraph that talks about uh, the future. Uh, he gives another reason why he doesn't have to say much this time around. He's been a fairly public president. Okay. So, you know, people know what's on his mind and, and where he's going. Yeah. Does he need to comment on the things that people have been watching very closely, especially since it was a time of war, uh, through the newspapers and word of mouth? Yeah, there, there's very little, he says, that I can offer you that you wouldn't already know. I mean, you, you pretty much what you've seen is what I've seen. In the, the first address, um, to use like a modern day phrase, um, kind of like he, he wants to come across as like a uniter, not divider. Oh, says, big time. He says, you know, I know the South is apprehensive. There doesn't need to be this apprehension. Um, and you see a real uh, dramatic shift in the second when um, he actually refers to the issue of slavery in regard to the South and uses the term insurgent. Which, you know, that, that's a big shift then, you know, don't be scared, South, but, you know, um, that, that was glaringly obvious. Yeah, okay, and it will be interesting for us to compare how conciliatory this address is because compared to the first address, what it looks like. I would argue that he's trying to do that in both speeches. Um, is there something different about the way he does it now, given that the conflict is all but over? Uh, than, the, than the first one when you were trying to avoid conflict. We weren't at war yet. Seven states had seceded, quote-unquote, uh, but not, no shots had been fired except for uh, the Star of the West, that, that merchant ship that uh, Buchanan sent down in January uh, that uh, at the, uh, South Carolina literally shot at it and scared it back <laughs> to New York, I think is where it, where it chipped out of. So, uh, But no true... Uh, uh, outbreak of war had taken place yet. Uh, he says in the last line of the first paragraph, with high hope for the future, no prediction in regard to it is ventured, and the it there is the progress of the war. He says, uh, we're, all, we're all pretty well apprised of the progress of the war. Um, he thinks it's, it's all but done, but notice he doesn't say it's over. Uh, it's, uh, it's not over yet, right? Lee hasn't surrendered uh, yet among the other generals. Um, well, with high hope for the future, no prediction in regard to it is ventured. See you later. God bless. Don't forget to write. Abraham Lincoln. Uh, why doesn't he stop there? Uh, apparently, the nation needs to know something else before they move towards the future. They need to know something else about what Lincoln is thinking and therewith how he will act as an executive in the coming four years, at least what he believed to be the coming four years. Uh, so let's turn to the second paragraph now. The second paragraph deals with the past. Okay? And now he takes us back to the beginning. Right? What do we learn in this second paragraph? What is its uh, argument or at least its topic? What is he going to address that he thinks uh, will be helpful in order to move us forward? What do we need to know about the past now, so that we can step into the future. That there was some sort of trying to negotiate before it came to war. So it, in a way, he's recognizing that um, he believes that the war was the last straw, that, he didn't, that people didn't want to get to that point. Yeah, I think... So he recognized that there was some negotiation, there was some some talk before they got to this point. All right, why do you think, uh, actually, 
I won't ask that question just yet. Um, how does he emphasize that point? The fact that nobody, which means nobody, in other words, either side of the conflict, nobody wanted war. How does he, how does he emphasize that? Do you, do you see how he does it rhetorically? Where he says all dreaded it, all yes. sought to avert it. Wow, no, no, how many times does he repeat that? All dreaded it, all sought to avert it, right? Uh, both parties deprecated war, okay? Um, oh, even that first line, all thoughts were anxiously directed, so all, 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 all. Is that a good word to use in an inauguration address? Yes, that is a uniting word, right? Us versus them. Not a uniting word, right? So Lincoln has the, he has set for himself a fairly high bar, I would say, uh, to here. If he's going to talk about the Civil War, which he is, he's got to do it in a way that all the while he, he knows, man, somehow I have to talk about conflict, difference of opinion, shooting at each other. <laughs> I have to talk about that in a way that doesn't cement the divide, but somehow promotes unity. How can I do that? Wow! Right? What a task to be a uniter talking about division. How does he do it? He begins with all, all, all. In other words, as a nation, we were anxious. As a nation, we dreaded it. As a nation, tried to avoid it. In other words, perhaps an idyllic portrait, but uh, 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 in general, he wants us to remember that there was a time when there wasn't all. There was a time when there was a we and not an us versus them. That can happen again. Right? You remember the, the, the let, actually this is worth turning back to, last paragraph of the first inaugural. Who can be the first one to get there? No? Who's there? Who's there? Nobody yet? What page is that? 370-something, right? Or 570-something? Did I beat you all to it? 574? 574. I am loath to close. Remember, this is the paragraph that Lincoln added to the original draft. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. Okay? He goes on to the most famous uh, part of that. So at that time, Lincoln said, we're, we're not enemies. We can't be enemies. We're friends. Passions, notice not reason, but the unruly, the visceral, the emotional part of us has taken over. But it didn't snap it to the breaking point when he said that <laughs> prior to war. That's what he's, he's hearkening back to. But interestingly enough, he doesn't, he's, although he begins and moves through that second paragraph, in oneness, if you will, all, united, both parties. He doesn't end with oneness, doesn't he? Uh, does he? In fact, we learn something. Lincoln points out that although all didn't want it, all were anxious about it, all were trying to avoid it, ultimately, something proved more important to one of the parties than all, than oneness, than even war, avoiding war. Go ahead. Well... Not at all controversial. It's not all antagonistic. 
<laughs> in poetry, what do we call that? Personification. Personification. War, this inanimate thing, becomes a person. Okay? Uh, hold that thought. I want, I want to say something about that, especially the bridge that it forms between the second paragraph and the third per, uh, paragraph. And personification, I believe, is key to it. Uh, but, but getting back to, to my question that preceded that, uh, what do we find out about union? Was union the most important thing to everyone? So much so that they tried to, uh, uh, even to avoid war. No, it turned out something was even more important than allness, oneness, union. What was it, according to Lincoln? Spread slavery. Okay, well, what, uh, cite, cite uh, your source. Does he mention slavery in the second paragraph? And then, again, curious. No mention of slavery in the right. second paragraph. Right, he says that one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive. Why? Make war for what? I thought they were try- all of it was trying to avoid war. Expansion of slavery. Well, well, I mean, he doesn't say slavery yet. No. Well, why does he say someone wanted to break the union? <laughs> Even Rather by- than let it survive as a union. Okay. So, well, was there another hand on that question? <laughs> What turned out to be more important than keeping the union together to at least one of the parties? Notice he doesn't use the word South. Okay. What was more important? Dissolving it without war. Yeah. Dissolving yeah. the union ultimately became more important, even to the point of war. Right? He said insurgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war. They didn't want war. But one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive. And the other, Lincoln, would accept war rather than let it perish. So even though he began the paragraph reminding us how devoted we were to union and how devoted we were to trying to avoid war, ultimately, one of the parties turned to war to break up the union. War became the means to a higher end. In other words, was avoiding war the highest end for Americans? No. It was, how do you answer the question of union? Is union worth it? And one of the parties decided, no. We will resort to war to break it. Uh, so did the secessionists or the South, did they use this afterward to prove to the point that I don't recall Stevens or Davis quoting Lincoln's second inaugural address to establish that point. I'm sorry. He's supposed to go against the very next thing that he says as soon as you turn the page. Lincoln says it's slavery. Yeah. Notice how that's veiled in the second paragraph? Slavery is veiled. Uh, a section, i.e., southern United States, is veiled in the second paragraph. The most specific he gets is insurgent agents. He doesn't pin the blame, at least in the second paragraph, on any particular region, because again, what's the point of the speech? Unify. He doesn't want people to leave the speech going, Southerners, the Southerners, right? He doesn't want people to think of themselves as Northerners, Northerners, right? He's doing everything he can rhetorically to disabuse us of this belief that there really are what Calhoun was saying, he saw the seeds of in 19, uh, 1837, two nations, or one nation. Go ahead. But even the parallel structures of how he organizes or sets up his sentence 
very unifying factor. I mean, when you really look at it, his use of language, um, even when he's pointing out the difference, one was to destroy, one was to save, he's still setting up his actual sentences so that the words are balanced on each mm-hmm. side. Lots of balance. So rather than it being <laughs> one was fighting to save and one was fighting to destroy being the focus, it's the fact that something was more important to each of us than destroying the union so that parallel... Then going war. Language, yeah. Going to war. It's very political. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, when he talks about the insurgent agents in the city, is he basically blaming it on southern representatives? And when he refers to cities, he's talking about D.C. And oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what he's absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like today, uh, the word insurgent it means uh, very... Tiny, uh, you know, uh, isolated group of people. Yes, very good. So, thereby making the point that uh, the majority of the nation support the union. Yeah. As now, well. as I said, it was this is an idyllic portrait of the United mm-hmm. States on March fourth, eighteen sixty one. But again, rhetorically, it serves its purposes here of the union. Uh, insurgent agents makes it sound like it's you know maybe a group about the size of this room. Right, this tiny minority. That's the implication or the resonance of a word like insurgent. You don't get the sense that it's half or a significant third or what have you. And that's what we use the word today in that right. Okay, good. All right, um, the bridge and the war came. <coughs> Again, culpability. He just said insurgent agents, but he closes the paragraph by saying, who's responsible for war? Yeah. <laughs> it just said he, he just says and the war came as if oh, right on time <laughs> it arrived like a train almost uh, the personification uh, can, can you can take that a number of ways uh, who he hasn't he mentioned yet uh, we know that there are two parties okay um, but he hasn't mentioned God yet by personifying war and the war came Perhaps he might be foreshadowing this third agent, providence, God. Uh, It's not just about what we puny human beings, we mere mortals, are trying to hash out and work out ourselves, first through diplomacy, then through fisticuffs, then through actual violence. Um, Lincoln takes a very cosmic, providential view of the matter in the third paragraph, and perhaps he foreshadows that with this... uh, enigmatic bridge beginning with the conjunction which I know you English teachers in our midst like beginning a sentence with the conjunction and the war came alright well let's shift in a way to uh, uh, the present with this next paragraph about where things stand and, and how we got here uh, what, what, uh, what's the first thing out of the box in this third paragraph that he mentions slaves, slaves finally he doesn't just say slaves. He says colored slaves. He wants to teach the nation. Well, let me before I let me ask a question. Why does he? Why doesn't he just say slaves? Why does he say colored? He's talking Race about specific based. group. Okay. Uh, is, is there anything else he's trying to point out about this? Why would he tell the nation that uh, this thing that by this point in time, right? We have January '65 is behind us. In January '65, finally, the House. Uh, has agreed to, two-thirds of the House has agreed to approve the 
13th Amendment banning slavery from the United States. Uh, and it will be sent to the states, has been sent to the states already, and by December of that year it will be ratified. So the 13th Amendment uh, is not quite on the books, but it l looks like they'll get their three-fourths uh, soon enough. Uh, with that behind them, why the mention of the, the racial caste of slavery? I think by putting the term colored in there, it makes it even more heinous because you are focusing on a single race, making that race superior versus, you know, if you were at war, then Okay, so we recognize, uh, Lincoln is now pointing out this, slavery has a few peculiarities to it. Its most uh, reprehensible aspect is the fact that it was done on the basis of something as arbitrary as race. This isn't a captured people in the sense of a people that we went to war with. Uh, this is a people that we enslaved simply by virtue of the fact of their race. Now, we don't enslave all blacks in the United States, but the vast majority are. What else is peculiar about it? Where it is located. Notice, he does not identify the South as a culprit in the war, as being responsible for the war here. The only time he mentions Southern, well, when he mentions Southern here, it's simply to point out what fact? Where the slaves are, okay? He's not assigning blame to the South for slavery. He's just saying that's where they were localized. That's where they were located. Go ahead. I, I like the use of the institution was the phrase that the Southerners had used for uh, a couple hundred years about slavery. And so in a sense, he's tossing it back. Yeah, my, my question is this. Um, uh, how was that phrase coined? I mean, does anybody know when that was first used? I don't know the answer to that. I, I don't know. The peculiar institution. Used, but I mean, but I, I do believe that when they said it, they meant it was peculiar to the South. Like unique or... Like unique, not that it's strange, but just that it was something that the South had. So it had to come, I think, after, you know... The, so it took on other connotations. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, hand up. It's, um, in, in my studies of, of the institution of slavery as an undergraduate, it's the rise of the institution of slavery as a unique institution to North America as compared to other parts of the world in the past and present. The South American uh, slavery became an institution of inclusion, whereas slaves were allowed to intermarry, uh, embrace the religion, the culture, and so forth, um, and they became um, almost one with the community itself, whereas in North America they became excluded okay. from being as part of the community itself. That's one of the blends strongest the idea of Okay. But there are other reasons for it as well. All right. Uh, now he finally says what's really the cause. I mean, it seemed like the cause in the second paragraph of the war was a desire to break up the Union. That's the goal. But it turns out that even that goal was really instrumental to another goal. In other words, they were trying to dissolve the Union not for dissolution's sake. They were going to achieve some objective. And that objective, what is it? What's that? Continue slavery. Yes, to extend slavery, to strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union. And he says all knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. And that somehow is, is very intriguing. 
He doesn't just say flat out, slavery caused this war. He says, somehow, inviting us to ask the question, in what way was slavery the cause of the war? Uh, the government, he said, all we were trying to do, were we trying to get rid of slavery? My administration? No. He, he, he reads this right out of, uh, essentially right out of the Republican platform. We weren't trying to end slavery, just trying to restrict the territorial enlargement of it. Right? The very thing, of course, that the Dred Scott case said government did not have authority to do. Lincoln said, that's all we were trying to do, was restrict it, not get rid of it. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and Well, he clearly doesn't think they're at fault because did they start the war in any way, shape, or form? No. And in fact, uh, yeah, possibly. Uh, but I mean, what does even Lincoln acknowledge about his own administration on the slavery question? Yeah, we didn't. This war was not begun to end slavery. No, this war was accepted. You know, by way of self-defense, and it was. Ex- I'm sorry. Which point? I think we'll. An- I think that'll get answered in this in the, by the, the end of the third paragraph. Okay. He says neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. What else didn't they expect? That the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Why does he point out that nobody anticipated how bad the war would be, how long the war would be, or even that slavery would be affected by the war? Why does he point out these in these three ways that, the, that neither side produced this outcome? Because they didn't start out to emancipate the slaves. They started out to preserve the Union. And in order to secure that end, and during the process, then he emancipated the slaves. Okay, but why is he showing us that something is taking place that was not intended by either side? So that neither side will have to take a blame. Oh, so he's trying to absolve someone for uh, for, uh, being held responsible for the war? Possibility. Possibility. Considering the way that he wanted reconstruction to go, I would say yes. So to avoid the blame game. Yes. Okay. Take care of all of that and let's not cause any more problems. Let's just end it and start it. Let's see if that's where he ends up. 
In a sense, it harkens back to Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration, his original draft, in which he he put blame on the king for bringing this institution of slavery to America. Preventing them from getting rid of it, or at least getting rid of the, the trade, slave trade. Would it go back to the whole problems idea was something beyond what any of us expected? Ah, or else's. So what man began trying to accomplish this federal government or that insurgent agent end turned out what did Alan Gelzo talked to us about earlier this week unintended consequences something that remember we tried to avoid war what happened and the war came uh, one fought to extend slavery another fought to merely restrict the territorial enlargement what happened slavery is almost abolished hmm we're over two in huge ways Right? Avoiding war, worst war ever, and ever since, happened. Not going to touch slavery, practically gone now. Two monumental, cataclysmic things happened to the nation, neither one of which was intended by either party in the conflict. Question, what is going on? <laughs> That's what he is trying to untangle in the third paragraph. Have at it. Just as the South was guilty of the institution, the North had played their fair share uh, of guilt in the overall process, and therefore the whole war was really God's wrath upon a nation uh, for immoral decisions. All right, so we have to uh, revisit this question of blame then. Perhaps he wasn't trying to make it a Southern thing, because it turns out the blame is much more expansive. The culpability, the responsibility for this peculiar institution, it turns out to be something that spreads north and south of the Mason-Dixon line. Hands flutter, right? It also takes the power away from us. It's an outside force now. It's responsible for this and accepted why, why is that helpful to do in this regard? Why is, uh, in this matter, why is it helpful to humble the nation? Why is it helpful to point out, or at least why does Lincoln attempt to point out that our best intentions, both north and south, were not accomplished? Actually, something more, how does he put it? Something, uh, each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. By the way, who is included in that? Lincoln himself. Each looked for an easier triumph. Each looked for something less fundamental and astounding. Lincoln himself is, uh, is included. Actually, look real quick to the letter to Thurlow Weed. 
uh, turn to page 796, and we'll come right back to the declaration. Uh, the ah, declaration definitely a Freudian slip. Uh, the second inaugural address. He says, everyone likes a compliment. And then he says this about the second inaugural address. I expect the latter to wear as well as perhaps better than anything I have produced. But I believe it is not immediately popular. Why? Men are not flattered by being shown that there has been a difference of purpose between the Almighty and them. To deny it, however, in this case, is to deny that there is a God governing the world. It is a truth which I thought needed to be told. And as whatever of humiliation, right, the process of being humble, whatever of humiliation there is in it falls most directly on the South. Oops, what does your version say? Oh, I'm sorry. I got, I got mine on sale. It says the South here. No, falls most directly on myself. I thought others might afford for me to tell it. What are you, see what, just another piece of Lincoln we learn here of his character that he says, at least in this letter to Thurlow Weed, if I'm going to tell someone something unpleasant that reflects poorly on them, he chose an occasion where what he was going to tell actually applied to himself as well. He was willing to dish out something that was going to be received as well uh, in turn. Let's go back to the second inaugural. How does he get us to the point where we can see a common, a unified, a national assumption of blame for this peculiar institution? As we point out that New England was the primary producer of slave ships, we point out all those things we rattled off yesterday about commercial banks helping extend credit to the South, that somebody must have been buying those woolen goods uh, being produced uh, in northern factories uh, as a result of the raw goods being produced by slave labor. Um, does he get that specific? How does he establish the fact that we are all to blame for this national a calamity that has fallen upon them. Well, he says, um, you know, that, that God has given this this wrath. He gives to both North and South this terrible war. Is the woe due to those by whom the offense came? And so, because both are victims of the war, both have lost lives, both have lost treasure, both must conclude that they're at fault. Go ahead. He also calls it American Yes. Mm-hmm. Talked about colored slaves, and now he says American slavery. Uh, that should look like, to his reader, post-Emancipation Proclamation, post, at least, passage of the 13th Amendment by both houses, uh, that should look like an oxymoron now. To say American slavery is to be a, is to is to utter a contradiction in terms. Even though he said that, he still he still takes a dig at the South. And he says it may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just. I've always found it interesting that a just God's assistance in ringing their 
bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge, not that we be not judged. All right. So he still thinks that slavery is wrong, that the South was wrong for allowing slavery to... It's quite clear. Uh, no one needs to read the second inaugural, inaugural address to know that Lincoln was anti-slavery. Okay. And yet, you're right. He does have to at least... He said, I can't finish the speech without at least pointing out something <laughs> about slavery. Okay. Uh, again, this bears repeating. He says, it may seem strange. In other words, at, at a surface level. On the surface. You know, appearances could be deceiving. He says, it may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God's assistance. Allusion to Thomas Jefferson's query 18. I tremble. Right? What's that? When I think that God is just, right? And he's talking about slavery. This is a direct allusion to Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia. I think that Lincoln is saying that this form has taken on a life of its own. Yes. Uh, he who inherits the wind will sow the whirlwind or something. Mm-hmm. I'm getting it mm-hmm. wrong. But that's that's yeah, close enough. Whirlwind. Oh, I thought you were going to elaborate on that. Go ahead. Let's go off the subject, but as you see so many references to God, I'm just wondering if it a number of commentators uh, on that particular subject of you know the role of religion in politics have, have made this contrast as well and said wow you know Lincoln he was able to pull it off. Is there something different about America in the 20th or 21st century that makes an address like this impossible or more difficult or more fraught with tightrope walking (laughs) rhetorically? Uh, And some would argue that because our society is more religiously pluralistic today than it was in Lincoln's day, that uh, there's less material to work with as an orator, uh, at least less uh, religious material. Back in Lincoln's day, most people were familiar with uh, the Bible. And most of those people were familiar with the particular Bible, the King James Version. Lincoln cites ex- explicitly, right? Judge not lest ye be judged, Matthew 7, verse 1. He, cites, he closes the third paragraph with the cit- uh, citation from the Psalms. Uh, the offenses passage is another citation from the Gospels. James or a number of other passages are cited in the fourth paragraph, you know, the allusion to caring for the widow, binding up the nation's wounds. There's Old Testament references about binding up wounds. Uh, so he's quoting left and right, whereas the, whereas the Bible or Christianity was informed the Gettysburg Address without being explicit. Here, he, he doesn't care. He says, I'm going to quote it, chapter and verse, in spite of the fact that he said just earlier, what? Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, but draw different conclusions, right? Even though he points out a way in which this country tried to appeal to God in pursuit of their own agenda, he says the prayers of neither have been answered or at least not answered fully. And so even, even there, I think Lincoln, and this is what I argue in my final chapter of my book, even there, Lincoln is trying to humble the nation. 
In the second paragraph, we learned, with no mention of religion, that our best intentions produce something the very opposite of the thing we wanted. And now we find out as well, even with our religious approach, Lincoln says, perhaps we should be humble even on that matter. Guys on both sides of the religious aisle arguing for and against slavery. Well, and I guess I'm just trying to imagine a a leader today in in a secular sense saying that one of the causes or one of the things that have uh, contributed to something is God. You know, that that the magnitude, the duration is is not just within our own hands, it was in somebody else's hands. I'm trying to imagine a leader... In well, a secular society, yeah, it's saying that the war, that? Yes, exactly. And saying that the war will go on as long as God wants to do a punishment for us. I, I can't imagine. There's a reason uh, why we assigned the speeches that we did uh, at the conclusion of the D.C. leg. Uh, not, it's not just because he's our current president. Um, with George W. Bush, you get someone. Uh, actually, um, I'll just propose it this way, that you get someone who returns to this sort of territory, and then the question will be, uh, when, when Charles Kessler takes us through, through those uh, speeches, uh, the question will be, are these Lincolnian? Or, or is there something else going on here? Why um, did people receive them well uh, or not? Um, should we even uh, try to do it? Is it foolish of the president to do it? I mean, those are questions that we'll get to. I don't want us to talk about it yet because we're not equipped to do it. But that's precisely one of the reasons why we assign it. And by the way, um, when we get to King, <laughs> he's not an elected official, official but we're going, we're going to see someone who brings in a whole lot of Christianity, a whole yeah, lot right. of the Bible. That's right. I mean, that's his, his occupation by time. But I, okay, well, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll discuss. I mean, I, that's what, but in my opinion, that's totally different because he's not an elected. All right, we'll see. He doesn't have to abide by separation. The question is, what are his objectives? Are they any different than a Lincoln or a George Bush or any American citizen, whether uh, an official or not? But hold, hold, hold it. And you're like, okay. I want to get there. I do too, but not yet. What, 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 what is he tackling here? I mean, do you think George Bush has a hard time? I mean, some of you may think that George Bush has a hard time dealing with religion and politics. What does Lincoln deal with in this address? I mean, this is an inauguration address after all. It's not a sermon, although some people equated it to a sermon. Uh, this is an inauguration address, and you know what he picks as his topic? Theodicy. Fancy word for the problem of evil in a world that most people presume is governed by God. In other words, Lincoln tackles perhaps the most difficult <coughs> question that has puzzled human beings since the beginning of time. How would you like that as an assignment? Your assignment for tomorrow, solve the Odyssey. 
square the existence of a sovereign God with the existence of evil on earth. Lincoln's approach to the subject, as I put it, is it's, it's American theodicy. The problem of evil, in this case, the problem of slavery in a nation. Lincoln says in the, in the ways of providence it came, evil can take place, and yet God can still hold people responsible for it. How to figure that out? How to entangle that? That's what Lincoln is, is trying to get us to do. Let me ask this question. Does Lincoln claim that God brought this war as a punishment on slavery? Let me rephrase that. Does Lincoln know that God brought the war as a punishment for slavery? If we shall suppose. Oh, now why shall we suppose it? Why can't Lincoln say for certain that he knows God wills this war to punish Americans north and south for the sin of slavery? Okay. Ah, that's the pivot of the speech, is it not? Everything up until that point is about what man is doing, man is doing, I'm trying, they're trying. Whoops, something else is happening. Whoa, something else is really happening. Wow, that's a lot longer. Man, that hurts a lot more. Boy, slavery's gone, right? All of that is about man and leading up to the point the Almighty has his own purposes. Would anybody disagree with that who listened to this address? North or South? Any believer in God? No, they would all agree, yeah, God has His His ways are not our ways. They're higher than our ways. Humbling or something you take pride in? Extremely humbling to be reminded of the fact that God's ways are not our ways. He's trying to get people to stop reflexively saying, the war was about this and now we're going to get back at this. Right? Remember it. At the end of this war, Eugene Genovese write, uh, writes a book uh, has something about fire in the title. I'm forgetting if it's ordeal by fire or something to that effect. Uh, what, what she essentially says is that when you read what especially uh, religious clerics, uh, priests, and preachers were saying in the South towards the end of the Civil War and right after, guess what they were thinking about this war? Did they view it in cosmic terms, in theological terms? Yes, that's their job. Okay? Guess what they concluded about the South losing the war? That slavery was wrong? No. That what? God's will that they should lose I can't hear. Was God's will that they should lose it? Why though? It's clearly God's will. They couldn't say that's not God's will. Why was it why why was God punishing them? No. God's punishing us because of our mistreatment of our slaves. It wasn't that slavery was a sin. It was that we didn't do slavery right. We weren't Christian enough in our treatment of our slaves. That's how deep the conviction regarding the biblical status endorsement, or at least approval of, of slavery was in the South. That we weren't being punished because of this as a sin. We were being punished because... We were inhumane to them. We didn't preach the word to them. We, were, in some senses, in, in some cases, they argued that uh, God was punishing us because we were greedy. We became capitalistic in the war. Uh, it didn't occur to a whole lot of the most public uh, uh, preachers on the subject that their loss in the war was due to the fact that they were practicing an institution that God did not favor. That's what Lincoln is 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 running up against. 
set out to do something and to accomplish a goal, but there are always unintended consequences. It seems to me he's just providing a religious example to that or explanation for that by saying, you know, each side set out saying, we're going to use God to accomplish this. Mm -hmm. We're going to use God. And he says that. We're going to be praying for God's support. We're going to use providence, God, whatever, mm -hmm. to accomplish our ends. And yet there's the unintended consequence that neither wanted. Therefore, the solution is on a religious level, you can't use God to accomplish your own ends. Rather, you have to work to accept the ends that God has put in place. Or in a non-religious perspective, you can set out to try to accomplish certain ends, but there is some greater force at work. Providence, the way that things fall out, the energy that... No, he didn't say energy. Off. He didn't say energy. He didn't say that, but I'm, <laughs> saying, I'm saying in a parallel understanding, if, if you don't accept religion as something that exists, there's still that understanding that, hey, shit happens. <laughs> Could you yeah. say that a little louder? <laughs> Okay, I got I got the tech guy that says we got it. <laughs> a few asterisks there. Uh, well, getting back to getting back to that the, that what I'm calling the fulcrum or the pivot of the speech. The Almighty has His own purposes. That follows the statement that both I think right doesn't it follow the statement that that uh, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. It's helpful to Lincoln to know that the vast majority of Americans believe in the Bible. The vast majority are Christians. And it's that premise that in spite of the fact that they came to opposite conclusions on the question of slavery, he knows since I'm working from the same base here, I can make an appeal to that base. And that appeal is with regards to the question of uh, God's sovereignty. Don't we? Should, uh, would you agree? <laughs> I've been waiting a long time to use that. Would you? The people on the internet are not going to know what I'm talking about. Enjoy it. Would you agree? That, what do you mean? Yes, I didn't say. Well, you know, it's, uh, you don't need to, right? Would you, would you agree? I even forgot what I was gonna, how I was going to finish that. What was I talking about? The Almighty has his own purposes, yes. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. Would you agree that the Almighty has his own purposes? And if so, then you have to accept the fact that perhaps everything isn't at just as the way you expect them to be. That allows him to say, if we shall suppose. In other words, he conducts a thought experiment. He says, I just told you the Almighty has his purposes. That means we don't know what they are. Now, we have some idea. It's not like Lincoln is clueless. Right? There is a Bible, after all, that most Americans trust. So we have some clue. But how those clues can be used as a lens towards what's happening right here and now, that's where the lens gets a little more foggy. Right? We see, what's the famous statement? Through a glass, but darkly, right? Okay, so even though he has his own purposes, we have some idea of what God is up to. Some idea. Now the question is, might he be up to something here? Bear with me for a while, Lincoln says. Perhaps this is what's going on. If we shall suppose. In other words, perhaps this is what's going on. 
can't say for certain because the Almighty has his own purposes. But if we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses, which in the providence God of God must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove. Remember, neither side willed to remove it at the beginning. It appears, perhaps, that God is doing this now. And that he gives to both north and south. There it is. Sections are mentioned. Guess where the blame lies now? On both. He doesn't dare mention the south. As a distinct combatant in the war, at it, within that context, because people will say, yeah, now it's our time to stick it to them. They caused all these deaths. Uh-uh. The only time he mentions distinct parties as regional parties is when it's time to lower the boom on both. Right? He now wills to remove that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. If this supposition is correct, he's inviting religious people of the North, religious people of the South, to bear with him in this thought experiment. If so far, so good. This makes sense. I could see how God yeah, could possibly be doing this. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? It's a rhetorical question, but presumably the answer is no, we don't see any departure. God could very well, the Christian God, the God of the Bible, the Jewish God, could very well be doing precisely what Lincoln asks us to suppose. Why does he give us this supposition? Let's keep reading. Fondly do we hope and fervently do we pray. Remember we were praying before and it appeared like God wasn't answering or at least not answering either side completely. Does that mean we should stop praying? No. Fondly do we hope and fervently do we pray. Keep praying. But perhaps with a more humble posture. That this mighty scourge of war... What is a scourge? Whip. That this mighty scourge, this chastisement of war, may speedily pass away. You would be, you'd have to be insane to want it to, go, to continue, obviously. We pray, if this is a visitation of the Lord, that God check it as soon as possible. Yet, if God wills that it continue, because the war ain't over yet, folks. Looks like it's all but over, over, but Appomattox has not happened yet. If God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Lincoln brings this poignant, theologically charged paragraph to a close by a reference to this Old Testament statement about God's characteristics, his judgment, making it very specific that the punishment is for slavery. How many years? 250 years of unrequited. And he reinforces the fact that this was stolen labor, stolen lives, stolen opportunities by referring to the slave not as a slave, but as a bondsman. And a bondsman was one, right? It was a form of indentured servitude. 
you were bonded to someone for service until such an amount of time that you will have completed that service and then you were set free. Two, what was it right? 250 years of unrequited toil. Payment has come due. In other words, if you Americans, North and, North and South, think that you were going to get away with it, that God was just going to sit around while you guys enslaved millions of men, women, and children year after year for more than two centuries, if you think God was going to sleep that whole time and never wake up, never pay attention, never punish you for all that theft, you have another thing coming. And it's been coming for four years. Lincoln does not know that this is what God is doing. He supposes that this might be what God is doing. And it's an implicit invitation. This is my argument. It's an implicit invitation for people both sides of the Mason-Dixon line to accept Lincoln's interpretation of the meaning of the war. Lincoln's offering of a collective memory, an American memory of what happened as the true account. And if they do that, then they can follow his exhortation in the fourth paragraph. Well, I'm just concerned that uh, how sincere uh, politicians are. Uh, this is the problem that uh, when there's uh, you know, uh, kind of a wanting to unify the, the country, politicians generally use the uh, you know, uh, mention God. And that's why um, I, I'm not sure whether I will trust uh, Lincoln with due respect. You know, what I really mean to uh, mention that uh, this, uh, the calamity, what happened was the, you know, from God. You know, I mean, in the religious aspect of it. Are what I'm saying is that even up to today, many politicians, many presidents, many leaders use the word uh, God. You know, I mean, I, I think if people have also used, and they blame directly, mentioned those people that uh, caused the, uh, this, um, you know, the war. People have directly addressed them. Others and did. The fact that yeah. he was trying to unify and, uh, you know, kind of a reconciliatory uh, you know, speech. Yeah, my question, uh, I guess the question that that raises is, because religion can be misused, should we not use it at all in a public fashion? Yeah, That's the question. I don't, think, I don't think we're... Uh, yes, for our own political gain, yes, we can use it. Wait, you're saying for our own political gain we could? In other words, we yes, should we do it? we could use it, you know, because it's always a good, you know, a way to... Uh, to uh, kind of appease both sides, every side, everybody. So that's now you're saying it's okay for them to do it? Or, <laughs> I'm confused. Are, are you saying that that's what they do do, that they do use it to... Yeah, that's more... We know, we know that they use it. I want to know what your... What, do you take issue with that? Yes, because... Okay. I mean, it's not true. Okay, that's what All right. Yeah. Can it be truthful? Yes. That's the question. I think that's the question that Lincoln's own speeches raise that Kings will raise, that George Bushes will raise, that any, Woodrow Wilson for that matter, he saw himself as a Christian statesman, okay um, that's the question I would say is raised when anybody uses religion 
that the question I think that it raises in addition to that is because it can be misused that mean, should that uh, should we conclude therefore that it should never be used in other words this is what we mean when we say throwing out the baby with the bathwater is religion and by, by the way it may be one of those things religion may be such a volatile divisive not uniting but divisive institution in society. It may be such a problem to do it well, to wield it publicly. I mean, how often do you get your Lincolns coming around anyway? Well, right? Like you said earlier, Lincoln was around in a time when we didn't have many, many different religions. So, I mean, timing was everything at this point in time also. Sure. So that, but I'm just saying, I'm not. Uh, that's for you to pose, maybe even for your students to, to try to wrestle with. But I'm saying it at least raises the question. If it can be misused, is it of such a nature that it's almost impossible to do it well, to use it in a way that unites rather than divides? And I would say that that is, for, at least for me, in terms of setting up the syllabus for this program, it's one of the underlying questions I want us to deal with when we read, especially the current president's statements that use or employ religion, <laughs> Christian themes, Christian allusions, even flat-out verses from the Bible. Is he doing it in a way that seeks to unite are the citations, their character, their principles, the way he uses it, the rhetoric within which they, they, they are presented, is it done in a way that imposes a particular agenda over another? Is it a way that unites or is it a way that ultimately divides? That, that just, I don't want us to answer that right now because we don't have the material before us. But I think... Now, I think I know that's one question I wanted. I want people to consider. Well, the question that I would ask is: Granted, we all know that he was speaking as a Christian, as far as we know where he, what, where he went to church and so on and so forth. But still, when you listen to his words, what Christian, what of any denomination, what Jew, what Muslim? what Hindu would agree with, would disagree with the wording that he chose. I mean, I think he was very skillful at choosing those words so that he did leave his particular way of interpreting God out of it and still appeal to all oh, believers in okay. God. So is there a way that you can use religion in a non-sectarian manner? Is that what you're suggesting? Well, I'm, yes, I suppose it is. Okay. And I think he Good. did that very skillfully. All right. Uh, other comments on this before we close it with the closing paragraph? I was just thinking, don't we struggle with this because they had different interpretation about church and state than we do today? I mean, all of our the constitutional cases haven't yet come up that have True. brought that phrase into our public life. So mm-hmm. they didn't think about it the way that we do. It, it was, that was part of the makeup of who we were as a people at that time. It was much more common. That was common ground between everybody. And that it's different today doesn't mean that you should leave the way we think today into what we can do Okay, good. Others? I guess the thing I'd say is like, um, I don't think there's anything inherently good or evil about the Bible. To me, what's more important like, is, is the message of, that people are using. So, I mean, there's like, love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't have to be like a Christian message. It's just 
It's like self-evident truth. It's just a good thing to do, whether you're Christian or not. So at least that portion of the Bible is inherently good. <laughs> well, no, I'm just saying, like... No, I don't mean to make fun of that. I mean, saying... Like, to me, it's more like, what, what, are, what is the objective you're trying to achieve? Because I think there's a lot of people that use Christian ideas for very unchristian purposes. Yep. Or yep. use Christian ideas to mask something completely something different or to rationalize something evil sure like the uh, southerners pre-civil war using christianity and northerners by that matter too, using christianity to justify slavery you know and, and at the same time you have another group of people using christianity to argue that slavery is wrong so it's not i don't know i'm not really sure where i'm going with that but to me just because something comes out of the bible doesn't make it good it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be bad either like for people who are not terrible Good. So that would be something that that would be an example of religion being used in a way that persecutes, in a way that divides, in a way that uh, uh, yeah creates us versus them. Yeah, it depends mm-hmm. on the context. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's precisely what he's saying. That they're using it in. Okay. And for what means? Yeah, and I mean, by, by the way, I mean, the mere fact that religion is being used for a political end to some Christians is very problematic. <laughs> uh, in other words, it raises the question, I like raising questions, it raises the question, is that what religion is for? I mean, politics may find religion very useful to accomplish its objectives. That still doesn't answer the question, is that the purpose of religion? Is that its aim? Okay. Well, okay, but I'm just saying, I mean, that, that, that right there, uh, I'm not saying everybody who's religious thinks religion is good in the public square. There are some people who are saying, yeah, that's not what, that's, that's contrary to Jesus' message. Right? Jesus wasn't pl- preaching a political system. He's neither Democrat nor Republican. Right? These sorts of, I mean, there's that wing uh, of, of uh, American citizens. It's piggybacking on what Greg had said about using um, ideas of the Bible for Christian purposes or for good purposes. I mean, Lincoln has the foresight. He knows the monument capacity he has of putting the union back together. And, you know, I think he really needs to figure out a way to get peace without victory. Like, you know, was that Wilson said, peace without victory at the end of the World War. Oh, I see what you're you know, saying. How are you, okay. you know, how are you, these people need to, he needs to pull on everything. I mean, you've lost your your your, your sons, your, your husbands, your uncles to these people in the South, and now we have to accept them back in, and everything needs to move forward. Mm-hmm. And I think by using, um, using the Bible or Christian principles, but bringing that in, I mean, that is a unifying force. Okay, and again, let's remind ourselves. What makes it unifying? Lincoln's appeal in the third paragraph. What is it that both sides need to remember? If they, if they buy Lincoln's supposition, theological supposition, that this war was God's chastisement of the nation for a common sin, a common punishment. If they accept that, how does that help Lincoln? This takes us to the fourth paragraph. Well, I was risking stating the obvious, but obviously, on 
memory that comes to mind is, is the September 11 one again. There was this crazy pastor, I suppose, in New York City, claiming that probably September 11 was another punishment by For God. some sins in America. Yeah. And then you go like, exactly what Blinker would have said, like, who are you to claim that you know God? And you can even say, God is punishing you by way of September 11. Okay, okay, but taking us back to this, yeah. this address here, he is asking us to accept a theological view of the war. And if we accept it, what, why, why does that help? Why, why does he think it'll help us get forward? Well, I think also anytime something really bad happens that's shocking, I think that sometimes there gets to be this feeling of what God, there is no God. Mm-hmm. And so if he brings us all back together, which he really needed to do, we're more likely to follow the founder's message than if we went away from that. Okay, oh, let's... I want us to tie this into the what he is going to ask us to do here. All right. So if you don't have, I mean, we have someone that was vanquished on the battlefield, right? But there's a remaining war that needs to be won, or a remaining battle. Okay. So we got to get to a place where the victors don't exult in the fact that they won, and that the vanquished don't feel. A whole host of emotions, uh, especially towards uh, Northerners, by virtue of the fact that they lost on the battlefield. We have to recognize that this was a family quarrel, and that we're at the end of the day, when the quarrel is done, we're still a family. Okay. Well, how do we? How does he get to the fourth paragraph? Then, what? How does the third paragraph prepare the way for the fourth paragraph? What does he call for in the fourth paragraph? Forgiveness. Yeah. Malice toward none. Charity for all. Go ahead. The word forgiveness implies that one wrong, a wrong has been done from one to the other. Mm-hmm. I think he goes beyond that. He doesn't even use the word forgiveness. Rather, it's <coughs> charity for all. And we strive to finish the work that we are in. Again, not that someone else created. It's a work we are in. Mm-hmm. None of us wanted to be in this war. None of us wanted to be we're in it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the suggestion was that forgiveness is either a part of bearing malice toward none or a part of charity, extending charity towards all. Because charity, I mean, that's a Christian virtue. Charity, uh, we, we don't use that word today the way it was used back then. The way it was used back then was the way we use today, love. Okay, go ahead. Um, forgiveness does not imply that only one side has to forgive. Okay. It's also funny that they needed to forgive the North for as well. Uh, Stan had brought up Sherman's March to the Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, Nasty things happen in war. And so the, just because forgiveness, there's blame on both sides. There needs to be forgiveness on both sides. Okay. So mutual recriminations, got to put this, a stop to that. Uh, what does Denzel Washington, his character, say in Glory in that very poignant scene when he's there with Matthew Broderick? I just remember the actors' names. <laughs> Matthew Broderick and Denzel are out there by themselves. They're looking over this 
you know, kind of swampy pond-like area, and it, yeah. pay attention to the dialogue there. You get a history of the Civil War in their in, in their exchange. What does Denzel say? The stinks on all of us. It's right out of the second inaugural. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The stinks on all of us. Well, and also what he says with malice toward uh, none, uh, he's also referring to the now slaves. No Talk about forgiveness. Yeah, there should be no sort of retaliation towards them also. So it's not just against... Who's the retaliation towards? Towards, or retaliation of those that are freed by the people in the South, that slave owners are not going to now... It's both ways, okay? Slaves, fine, masters, they only have some things to forgive in their slaves, but believe me, the slaves have got a lot of forgiving that they're being called to do. Anything, a KKK sort of thing. You know, yeah, not going yeah. after mm-hmm. um, blacks that are now free. Mm-hmm. Definitely, sort of definitely. With malice toward none. Right? North, south. Slave and free. Black and white. With charity. Right? Charity, love for all. Firmness in the right. Here it is. As God gives us to see the right. The Almighty has his own purposes, but... We can get some idea uh, simply because we can't know them completely, exhaustively, you know, totally in every single solitary given situation. That doesn't mean we ha- we don't have any idea of what God is up to. So keep praying, Lincoln says earlier. Keep striving. Firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. The reminder there should be: How do we learn what God's truth is? With humility. With humility. Right? Humility is uh, the, the the premise. Uh, of the third paragraph. Strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish. And cherish. People not only have to have a common understanding, a common memory of the war, they have to put their heart into it. They have to believe that that is the right interpretation. The fact of the matter is, we don't have that in the United States. Right? Lincoln did everything he could in the first inaugural to try to persuade the states not to secede, but ultimately it was two-way street. His words failed. He does everything he can, I would argue, in the second inaugural address to try to get people to have a common understanding, a common interpretation of the meaning of the Civil War. With the failure of Reconstruction, what happens? We find that we really are still uh, two nations on this question. You know, the, the, the old line about... Uh, you know, the North thinks the war was over and the South thinks it's just halftime. Right. That's what Lincoln's trying to avoid. So we need to not only achieve this peace, it needs to be cherished. In other words, this is how it ought to have concluded. An alternative, alternative conclusion would not be God's will for America. That's the logical corollary. Just peace and a lasting peace. We don't want to ever do this again. And the way to not do it ever again, again, I argue, is to believe the supposition that Lincoln presents in the third paragraph, among ourselves and with all nations. All right. Uh, Closing comment with five minutes left. And with all nations, why why is that concluded? I mean, is there... To me, that would... 
So perhaps he should have ended it with may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace and just leave it at that. Why does he make this distinction yes. about domestic peace and foreign peace? Right. Good question. What, what, what do people think? Um, maybe it's because there were other nations that were thinking about getting involved with the Civil War. I mean, we had a uh, British emissary with the Confederate Army at Gettysburg. Okay. Good. Said, you know, a lot of, a lot of Northerners thought that England should give us Canada to make up for the Alabama Clause. Hmm. I think we can saw way, way beyond all of that thought that the Declaration of Independence is a universal doctrine and ought to extend beyond borders of the Americas in uh, around the world. Yeah, and I think that's right. inclusive not only to uh, those of us who are fortunate enough to call ourselves Americans, well, that's a strange title given that there's a North and a South and a Central America, and exactly what does that mean? Um, but to those who might one day uh, find themselves believing fervently and hoping and praying that there would be indeed equality for all men. Well, Lincoln tell you, it lifts the burden from the shoulders of all men. Yeah, he had a very philanthropic view of the success of the American experiment in self-government. All right, uh, I am certain, I am certain to make reference to Frederick Douglass uh, when we move forward uh, in our discussion, especially of the civil rights movement in the 20th century, but we just don't have time uh, to touch on that today. We'll just close off uh, with Lincoln's speech here. Uh, when are we supposed to reassemble in the front of the hotel for the bus? You have a few minutes.